How much money would you sell your eyesight for? Is there any amount of money that you would be willing to go blind for? I think the answer for most people, probably not all, but I think the answer for most people is no. Our eyesight is precious and important. I think it's obviously, clearly, one of the things that we most take for granted in our life. And if you don't believe me, just ask someone who's losing it. The ability to see, it really is a remarkable blessing. And today's passage, we get to experience the joy of reading about a man who was blind his entire life receiving his vision for the first time at the hands of Jesus. It's, it's hard to even imagine what that would be like, but we get to read about it. And if we know anything about Jesus, I think we're going to learn something along the way. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. John chapter 9, 1 through 12. When you found the text, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, Thus saith the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, Is he? Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. As Jesus continues in his earthly ministry, he walks past a man who's been blind from his very birth. And it's obvious that this man is well known in the community. Uh, And since there was no way for a man, especially uh, in his day and age, there was no way for a blind man to really make an honest living, he was forced to become a beggar. And this is why he was known. He was sort of the town, the famous town homeless guy. You know, he's probably the blind guy begging on the same corner every single day. And he had a reputation. People knew him. As a matter of fact, what we're going to find out next week is this man is so well known that it's even common knowledge who his parents are. They know this man and they know his parents. So this is sort of the town beggar, the town blind guy. And he's regularly begging for money and food and other things. And so as the disciples and Jesus pass this man, the disciples, you know, Jesus is their rabbi and he's got all the answers. And there must have been some age-old debate about why this guy was blind. How could God let a man whom he loves be born blind from birth and live this horrible life? 
And so they ask a question that's related to a topic of theology that today we call theodicy. Theodicy. Theodicy is the doctrine of defending God's innocence in the face of suffering and evil. In other words, how could a good God allow so much suffering and evil in this world? How could there be a good God when we look out in our world and we see that the world that he reigns over is filled with so much suffering and evil? That's the question of theodicy. And the way that the disciples ask Jesus this question, it tells us about their answer to theodicy. They see all suffering as sort of a direct punishment for some sin. Right? That's their theodicy. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Well, because we sin and God then punishes us for our sins. So all of your suffering is a divine judgment for some specific sin that you've committed. That's their theodicy. But this man presents a problem to their theodicy because he was born blind. How could that be a punishment for sin if he was born into this world blind? And so they had come up, the Jewish community had come up with two options, and there was obviously a debate among them. One option was that perhaps children can be punished for the sins of their parents. So his parents must have done some really wicked, evil thing, and then he was punished for it. So maybe his parents' sin is what caused it. So that's one option they give to Jesus, but they give another option. They say that perhaps he was able to sin. And there's, believe it or not, there's two ways that we know through non-biblical sources about the Jewish mindset of how someone could sin before they're born. And one way is pretty simple. Many Jewish people thought you could actually sin in the womb. They thought you could be in the womb and you could still commit grievous sins. So one argument on the table is that, well, maybe he sinned in the womb. Well, it gets even crazier, by the way. There is even a small faction of Jews who believed in what today we would call reincarnation. That you could sin in a past life and then come into this world and have the effects of the sin. So they sort of created theology where maybe it was his parents, but maybe it still was him. But either way, we know this has to be the punishment for sin. So they asked Jesus, solve the debate for us. Is it his sin, either in the womb or in a past life, or is it his parents' sin? Because they see, again, all suffering as punishment for sin. And what, the way Jesus responds is amazing. He responds by denying their base assumption. He calls this essentially a false dichotomy, which is when you give two possible answers, but there's actually a lot more than two. He denies their base assumption. Jesus does not believe that all of our suffering is some divine punishment for our sin. If you don't believe me, there is an entire book of the Bible dedicated to this very topic. I mean, there's other topics included in it, but the book of Job is dedicated to this very issue, right? If you remember, the Jewish mindset was the very error that Job's friends made and were rebuked for. They were convinced that when all those horrible things happened to Job, they were convinced God would never let a good or innocent man go through these things. So you must have done something bad. And the only way out is for you to admit that and repent. And Job spent the entire book maintaining his integrity. Maintaining his innocence. I have done nothing to deserve this. This isn't a punishment. And they debated that throughout the whole book. And the Bible ends up coming out on Job's side. 
And we see that from the very beginning. It tells us why Job is tortured, and it was not as a punishment for some sin. But perhaps the better proof than Job is Jesus himself. Jesus was perfect. He had no sin at all, and yet the Bible describes him as a man of sorrows. Jesus lived a very difficult life, filled with a lot of suffering. What sin was he being punished for? None. So Jesus does not see this man's suffering as being the punishment of God. He tells us it has nothing to do with sin. Now, let me take a step back. It would be a mistake then to read our Bibles, to read John 9 as if it's a paradigm for all of our suffering. What the Jews believe is not totally wrong, it's partially wrong. Because in other places in Scripture, the Bible does tell us that our suffering can sometimes be punishment for sin. We actually already saw this in the Gospel of John. If you remember back in John chapter 5, Jesus healed a paralyzed man, and there he told him that his, his paralysis was the result of his sin. And he told him, go and sin no more, lest something even worse happens, right? But we can go outside of John for more explicit examples. Uh, the famous story of David committing the sin with Bathsheba. God killed his child, his child born from that union. God killed that child and told him, it's for what you've done with Bathsheba. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that the reason so many of you are getting sick and some of you are even dying is because you are abusing the Lord's Supper. So God was punishing them for their sin. And, and probably the classic text that you can, we won't look at it today, but if you want to go home and study it, uh, the classic text would be Hebrews chapter 12. The Hebrews chapter 12, the first 13 verses, really maybe even more, is all about an explanation of how God is our Father. And what do fathers do to children when they disobey? They discipline them. They punish them. And so Hebrews says that God punishes us like a good father. And it even goes so far to say, if you're not being disciplined, you should be very worried because God only disciplines those whom he loves. He only disciplines his children. So the Bible sort of, to some degree, speaks with two different voices here. You've got John 9 and Job and Jesus where you don't suffer for sin. And then you've got 1 Corinthians 11 and Hebrews 12 and John 5 where sometimes you do. And so the end result is simply we can just believe both of these things. That sometimes we suffer because God is disciplining us. And sometimes we suffer not for reasons not related to our sin. Now, I admit that this can be difficult to discern. Because you, know, you can't say, well, the really bad suffering, that must be sin, because Job's was really bad. Right? There's really not like a mathematical formula for when it's discipline and when it's just part of God's purposes. And so what that requires of us is a little bit of caution and humility. We need to be very, very careful before we just go around telling either ourselves or our brothers and sisters when they're going through something hard. We need to be very, very cautious to not be like Job's friends and accuse them of some sin and ask them, what's the secret sin you've been hiding that you need to repent of? We, sh we should be very cautious. Unless it's very, very obvious, we should just assume this is just God's providence. I really like the way Calvin cautions us. I, I just love the, the language that he uses. He says this, when the causes of afflictions are concealed, we ought to restrain curiosity that we may neither dishonor God nor be malicious toward our brothers. 
right? So unless it's obvious, don't just jump to the sin conclusion, <laughs> right? Um, but sometimes we are disciplined for our sin. But the good news is as it pertains to the man in John chapter 9, we're not left guessing. Jesus corrects his disciples' poor theology and he declares very clearly for us that the beggar is not blind because of some sin that he committed or because of some sin that his parents committed. Rather, he's blind for this very moment so that God might demonstrate the power of Christ and the mercy of Christ in him. In other words, hear me on this, he was blind so that Jesus could heal him. That's the reason he was blind, so that Jesus had something to heal, something to demonstrate, to prove what he said last chapter. I am going to prove that I am sent by my Father. I am going to prove that I am from heaven. And these are one of those proofs. He healed a man born blind. How many of you can do that? So he spits in the ground, he makes mud, he anoints the man's eyes, he sends them to the pool of Siloam. The man washes and his sight is miraculously restored to him by Christ. Which is quite the spectacle. This miracle, as a matter of fact, is so incredible that half of our passage, today over half of our passage, is just dedicated to the townsfolk not believing it. <laughs> Right? There's a debate. Is this even the same guy? And half of them are saying, no, I think it's just a guy that looks like him. That can't be the same guy, just a lookalike. And he has to actually convince them, like, no, guys, it's me. <laughs> they say, how are you healed? And he says, I don't know. Jesus just touched me and healed me. Where is he? I don't know. I've never seen the guy. I've had my vision for 30 minutes. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he is. I just know some guy named Jesus gave me my sight back. This is amazing. But the healing was not written for us to merely just sit back and be in awe at you can do that. You should do that. But Jesus is very clear that this healing has a lot of teachings involved with it. He didn't just heal for spectacle's sake. He wants us to learn something. And, and, and I think that the way Jesus goes about presenting this chapter, or this portion of the chapter, is really he wants us to see that the blind man sort of represents us all. We are all the blind beggar. All of us have been born blind from our birth spiritually. We are unable to see the things of God. By our nature, we are blinded to the things of God until Christ, in His love and in His mercy, comes along and opens up our eyes. And if you don't believe that, then you should no longer sing that classic hymn that we just got done singing, Amazing Grace. In it, we confess, I once was lost, but now and found was blind, but now I See, this text applies to all of us in that it reminds us that Christ too has given us sight miraculously. He has cast out our darkness and he has healed our blinded hearts. But this raises the question, when Christ restores your spiritual vision to you, what do you see? What are we seeing? In other words, what has he restored your vision? What has he opened up your eyes to see? That's implied in the text. It's not explicit. And so I think our job today is to draw that out. And I think there are three primary things that the light of Christ illuminates for us. There are three important things that God reveals to us and opens our eyes up to, at least in this text. Perhaps we could multiply them with the rest of the Bible. But this passage draws our attention to three things. The first one, the first thing you see when your spiritual eyes are opened is the glory of Christ. 
we see Christ himself. We're going to kind of work backward through the text. Look at verse 5 with me. Jesus says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's verse 5. So the first thing you see whenever light pierces the dark is the light source itself. Right? That's, that's just common knowledge. That's obvious. When light pierces the dark, it's impossible not to see the source of that light. They are one and the same, essentially. And so when Christ declares himself as the light of the world, he's not just the one by which you see other things. You see him. You see the light, the light source itself. What that means for us is that when God converts you, when Christ converts you, you see him as he truly is. We see him as the son of God who saves us from our sins. And this is the interpretation, by the way, that will be vindicated at the end of the chapter when the blind man finally meets Christ and repents and believes that he is the Messiah and he even bows down and worships him as God. The first thing we see is the glory of Christ. You could put it another way. You could say that Jesus opens our spiritual eyes to the gospel because Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is our gospel, and so we are opened up to the gospel. That's actually the very connection the Apostle Paul makes in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So that's him saying, we're going to openly preach the gospel. We're not going to taint it. We're not going to mess it up. We're just going to preach the message. But what if people don't believe it? A lot of people don't. What happens then? Well, he goes on. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So the glory of Christ is the gospel. That's what we're seeing. And that's what the unbelieving world is blind to. He is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see how Paul is saying the same God who in the beginning when there was nothing but darkness said, let there be light. That's the same God who comes to us and recreates us when we are nothing but darkness. He says, let there be light. And what do we see when he says, let there be light? We see, he says at the beginning of the chapter, the gospel. And he says at the end of the chapter, what is that gospel that we are seeing? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God opens up your eyes, you see the glory of Christ. Christ is the first thing you see when you are given sight. But once we see Christ, that light then begins to illuminate other things. First we see the light source, and then we turn and we, we look around the room and say, wow, I can see a lot of things now. And what are some of those things? Well, I think another one that we get in this text is what I'm calling the mission of God. We see the mission of God. Look at verse 4. We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. In our country, we are just blessed to live with an amazing electrical grid. That's another thing we take 
advantage of. We take for granted a lot. Just how blessed we are to have this amazing electrical grid that just gives us power whenever we want it. It's astonishing. And so because of that, we have the blessing of what people in the past have not been able to, where we're able to get work done even when it's dark outside, right? Because we can now create artificial light source. But keep in mind, throughout most of human history, our human beings in the past have not had that blessing. Yeah, they've had torches and flames, but that really only goes so far. For the most part, human beings throughout all of world history have been entirely dependent on the sunlight to get their work done. Right? Their schedules follow the sun. You're up when the sun rises, you're down when the sun descends. Because you don't have light to work. So you work when it's light, and then the work has to stop once the light goes out. And Jesus sort of uses that as a very complicated analogy where I think he's teaching multiple things. It's, it's admittedly quite difficult. Like, so on the face of it, it seems like he's referencing his death. Right? He's saying that, that I am the light of the world, and as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world, but there's a night coming where you won't have the light and you won't be able to work. So on the surface, he seems to be saying, while I'm in the world, I am the light, but there's a time coming where they're going to they're gonna quench that light. They're going to put me out, and then you're not going to be able to work anymore. And so perhaps the, the surface level uh, interpretation for the disciples is that we are living in a very unique time. We are living where the revelation of God is a living physical thing lighting up our world. Now is the time we need to get to work. This is a unique time. But I think Jesus' metaphor here of him saying you need to work while it's light out because there's a night coming, you won't be able to work, I think that has a different extension. I think he's sort of symbolizing two different things here. And the reason I think that is because what Jesus is saying is just simply, if we take it to its extreme, it's not true. Because what's the, if Jesus says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world, what's the implication now that he's no longer in the world? He's not. He's not the light. But is Jesus still the light of the world? I think so. Now, admittedly, there's a difference in how that light comes to us. So when Jesus was, in, during his human ministry, theologians say that was an unmediated light. It was an immediate light, which means there was no middleman. It was just the light source and the light. That's it. Now that Jesus has ascended, he is still the light of the world, but it comes through mediation. It doesn't come directly from him, but it comes primarily through the Holy Spirit, he sent the Spirit to continue his mission. So the Holy Spirit brings the light of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit fills who? Us, the church. So we are actually now the light of the world. And you might be thinking, whoa, that sounds a little blasphemous. Like, don't be trying to take that from Christ. But these are actually Christ's words. Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there is a very, very qualified sense in which Christ is not the light of the world in that, not immediately. But Christ is still the light of the world, but that light is now mediated through the Holy Spirit working through the church. So the Spirit and the church is how Christ now shines his light. So there is a difference, but I would maintain that Christ is still the light of the world. Another problem with Jesus' analogy is he says, once the dark comes, you won't work anymore. But Christians are still working. 
People are still doing the works of God. And so that's why I think we have to see Jesus' metaphor as having two different layers. There's one application for the disciples, but there's a different application related, but a different application for us. And I think the application for us is pretty simple. I think Jesus is essentially using a metaphor to remind us that your life is but a vapor. Right now, you're alive, it's daylight, so now is the time to do the works of God because you have no idea when your day is going to end and you will no longer live this life and be able to do those works. Jesus, in other words, is urging us on to good works. God has given us this life to do good works. And so that's one of the things we see when we come, become Christians. When God converts us, we see the law of God. We see God's expectations for our lives. We are led by the Spirit, and the Spirit leads us into doing good works. We see good works and how to perform them. But there's something in this text, there's a reason why I didn't title this second point, Good Works. I think there's an even broader application Jesus is making than just thinking of each of us as a bunch of individuals doing good works separately. Because look at what he says in verse 4. Look at how he describes these works. Verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Do you see how Jesus uses the plural we must work these works? This is amazing. Jesus is lumping you in with him. Right? In other words, Jesus is not saying, like, I have these works that I'm going to do, and then Colin has these works that he's going to do, and then you have those works. He's saying we're all on mission together. We're all doing the same thing. We're all accomplishing the same goal. We are with Christ performing his works. Jesus presents us as a unified body completing a singular mission that God has given us. Christ has opened up our eyes to the mission of God. In other words, he's opened up your eyes to why you're here, what your purpose is here for. By the way, this sort of explains the symbolism of the pool of Siloam. That's important to Paul. He tells us that the blind man went to the pool and he tells us what the word Siloam in Hebrew means. He says, by the way, this means sent. So it's important to John that we know that that Jesus, the sent one, sent someone to a pool called sent. He, he's, he's re, he wants us to get this, this huge thing of sending, sending, sending. Christ was sent. He's the sent one. And then what did Christ do in the Great Commission? He took his body on earth, the new light of the world, and he sent us. We are all sent with Christ. And we're performing the mission of God with him. And what I love about this message, I firmly believe that we need to hear this message over and over again to keep our lives from suffering meaninglessness. So many non-Christians struggle to find meaning in their lives. Their lives just don't seem meaningful. They wake up, they go to work, they come home, they sleep, and then they repeat the process until they die. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that such a nihilistic way of looking at the world and your life? But what other option do you have? I just work until I die. That's life. But you see, in Christ, we have had our eyes open to the mission of God. And so suddenly, our everyday routines, they avoid that monotony. They avoid that emptiness because we now see ourselves of, as working the works of Christ until the lights go off. We are always on mission. Nothing you do is meaningless when you're behind enemy lines. Cooking eggs in the morning is one thing, but if you were a soldier 
Hiding behind enemy lines, breakfast has a whole new meaning. When you're behind enemy lines, everything has a level of intensity to it. Everything has a level of, of caution and purpose and planning and meaning to it. In other words, what I'm saying is when we change our perspective after Christ opens up our eyes and we no longer just see ourselves as these accidental chemical robots working until they die, but we instead see ourselves as Christ's soldiers who've been sent behind enemy lines in the army of the church waging war against sin and death, our daily routines become quite meaningful. Your job, no matter what your job is, whether you have a secular job or you work in the church or you're a homemaker raising kids, what are you doing with your money? Why do you go to work every single day? You're raising up future soldiers. When you go to work, you're making contact with the enemy. I could go on and on and on. Christ has opened our eyes to the mission of God and it fills our everyday existence with excitement and purpose. You're not just working until you die. You are working the works of the Father. You are waging war against sin and death. You are bringing the kingdom of God to earth. You need to wake up every morning and put your feet on the ground and know today is another day to advance the mission of God. Today is another day to do the works that God has given us. And those really are the two main, the two broad realities that Christ opens up our eyes to. He opens up our eyes to the gospel and to the mission of God. But this text, we're not done yet because it has a hidden gem in it. And it's something a little bit more specific than those very broad things. And I would argue, lastly, that Christ opens up our eyes to a very specific aspect of our lives. That Christ's light can help us see, number three, the purpose of our suffering. Christ helps us to see the purpose of our suffering. Let's read verses 1 through 3. The very thing that, that, that sort of springboards Jesus into this conversation about seeing him and doing the works of God. The blind man. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It strikes me every time I read this passage that I just don't feel like Jesus answers their question the way I think a lot of Christians today would. Typically, we try as hard as we can to distance God from suffering and evil. And it makes sense because we don't want him to look bad. Like God is not the author of evil. God is not evil. And so we, we don't want people to even get that impression. And so we want to just distance God and distance him from suffering and evil. It's, it's, it's not his fault. And those are in noble intentions, but I just can't help but notice Jesus does the exact opposite of that in this passage. Jesus does not pretend that God's relationship to this man's suffering is one where he's only on the back end. Meaning, when suffering comes, Christians, we like to present God as just always being only on the back end of it. So it comes, and it's not God's fault. He had no control over this. He couldn't stop it. It just happened. Man has free will, and he can't override that free will. So, so bad things happen, and his hands are tied. But don't worry. He'll find a way to fix this. I call it the divine janitor, right? He just cleans up the mess. He's always on the back end. But Jesus is putting God on the front end. Jesus is implying that ultimately, there might be other things in between, but ultimately, God is the one responsible for this man's blindness. God wanted him to be blind so that he could have Jesus heal him. 
This was God's purpose. This was God's intention. Jesus takes the God that we distance from our suffering and he pulls him right back into the mix of it. And I would argue, we mentioned the book of Job, I would say the book of Job does this even more offensively than Jesus does. The entire book of Job, which is dedicated to this unimaginable pain and suffering that Job went through, and yet Job never, ever tries to distance God from that evil. He never blamed free will or treated God like he just simply couldn't stop it. After the first set of evils, so Satan says, let me destroy Job. And God says, go ahead, just don't kill him. Do whatever you want to him. So Satan brings this wave of horrible suffering. And how does Job respond? This is not God's fault. This is Satan's fault. This is not God's fault. This is man's free will. And God can't override our free will. What can God do about it? Now, that's not how Job responds. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you think, I don't like that response. I think Job is wrong here. Not allowed to think that. The Bible approves of his message. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Who took Job's children away? God did it. Who took his business away? God did it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it gets even worse. Satan pours even more affliction, more suffering, and more evil upon him. So you think, okay, now Job is going to realize this is not God. This is Satan. And in a sense, that's true. But Job still continues to draw God into the heart of his suffering. What does he say after the second wave, after his wife tells him, you're obviously a sinner, this is Satan, curse God and die. How does Job respond? Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Who did Job receive all of this calamity from? Who gave it to him? God. The same one who gave him all the good. (laughs) And you say, again, I don't like that. I don't believe that. Well, you're not allowed to. The Bible approves of his message. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He's saying the right thing. God took away. God gave me this suffering. He brings God into the front and he doesn't distance him from it. And I just... If I'm being honest, I don't think many Christians are comfortable with that answer today. I think, if I'm being honest with myself, I think if most of us in this room are being honest with ourselves, we're maybe a little uncomfortable with that message today. But I want to encourage you, we need to get comfortable with it. We need to be comfortable with it. And I say it for this reason. The more we take God out of our sufferings, the more we actually remove the meaning of our sufferings. And we don't even know we're doing it. If God causes our sufferings, ultimately in some sense, if ultimately this comes to us from Him, that's the foundation we have to believe there must be a purpose to this. If I'm receiving this from the hands of a good and loving God, then it must be for a good reason. If, If we remove God from it, then it just, stuff happens. Sorry. It's meaningless suffering. It's purposeless suffering. But I can contend with you Our suffering always has meaning. Becky said in Sunday school today a great phrase, God doesn't waste anything. 
There's no such thing as meaningless suffering for his saints. There's no wasted suffering. God gives you these seasons for a purpose. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, by the way. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Your sufferings are preparing you for an eternal glory, wherein when you get there, you will never once look back and be like, God, I'm still upset that you made me go through that. They can't even be compared to the glory. And that's why Paul can conclude with that famous verse, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Your suffering is good for you. And you can only believe that if God gave it to you. If Satan gives it to you alone, it's not good for you. (laughs) Satan doesn't have your good in mind. But God does. And he gives you your trials and your calamities for good. He is preparing you for eternal glory. Paul says this, uh, we're we're running late on time, but I really want you to see this. We, We quoted from 2 Corinthians, the first six verses. He continues this thought in a very relevant way. So let's turn there. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. After talking about how Christ illuminates the darkness, Paul breaks into this issue of suffering. And how Christ changes our perspective on suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's read verses 7 through 18 together. And I will try to keep the commentary short. I'll let the text speak for itself. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. Whoops. So this treasure that he's talking about is the gospel he just got done. This gospel that God has revealed in us. This gospel that God has shown into our hearts and put within us. He clarifies, verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also might be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been spoken or what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what you see in your suffering. That we are suffering with Christ. That God has put this gospel in jars of clay. Cheap, fragile vessels. We are breaking. We are falling apart. We are dying a little bit day by day, but not inside. 
Inside, we are being renewed. Inside of these broken, sick, suffering bodies is a treasure. And Paul tells us that the, re- the two reasons that God wanted it this way is number one is it makes God more magnified. So that when you go through ALS, a miscarriage, losing your job, and you still have hope and joy, and you still take on that pain and suffering with gladness like Job, you continue to worship. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The unbelieving world looks at us and says, their God must be great. I am convinced that there is nothing that changes the minds and hearts of believers quite like being able to suffer for God's glory. It is a stronger argument than any logic, any scientific evidence. Nothing compels people to see the glory of Christ than when his people are crushed and perplexed, but never forsaken. And they never lose hope. Our suffering brings glory to God. And that's exactly what God said about the blind man. Why is he blind? Is it Satan's fault? Maybe to some degree. Is it sin's fault? Maybe to some degree. But the ultimate reason was because God wanted to glorify himself in this. And the, and, and the consolation in all this is this suffering is not merely just a display of God's power. It is preparing us for a glory that Paul says is so great that even the worst thing you go for, even the worst thing you go through, you know what Paul calls it? Light and momentary. Think of the worst days of your life. Think of the worst pain of your life. And Paul says, if you're in Christ and you compare that to eternity, it's nothing. It's a light, momentary affliction. That's what God has for us in suffering. He gives our suffering meaning and purpose and hope. And this is a message that the unbelieving world will never believe. They will never accept that as a theodicy. And they will continue to suffer and grieve without hope because they're blind. But Christ has opened our eyes to see it. We all once were blind too, but because of God's, as we sing, amazing grace, now we see. For Christ is the light of the world, and he has opened our eyes to himself, to his gospel, to see the mission of God that he has called us to join Christ in fighting. And because of these things, we are also able to see that all of the sufferings and the evils that we endure along this mission are purposeful. And they're used by God for our good and for His glory. And this is why we can come together as a church, whether peace flows like a river or sorrows roll like sea billows. Whatever our lot, what has Christ taught us to say? It is well with our souls.